This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. A recent report from the Privacy Commissioner finds Mounties were using Clearview AI, an American facial recognition software. The software pulls your photos from Facebook and Instagram, then puts them into a database that Clearview customers can search. In addition to privacy concerns, independent studies of facial recognition find it can return false matches. The RCMP first denied using the technology, but admitted to it after Clearview's client list was hacked last year. The RCMP accepted the Privacy Commissioner's recommendations, but disagreed with the finding that Mounties broke Canadian privacy laws by using technology built with stolen data. Earlier this month, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada released a scathing report on the RCMP's use of facial recognition technology, particularly its work with Clearview AI. The report was particularly damaging, as the Commissioner found that the RCMP wasn't truthful when it said it didn't work with Clearview AI, and then gave inaccurate information on the number of uses when it was revealed that it did. In fact, even after these findings, the RCMP still rejected the Privacy Commissioner's findings that it violated the Privacy Act. Lex Gill is a Montreal-based lawyer with Trudel, Johnston, and L'Esperance, where she focuses on appellate litigation and public interest advocacy and teaches at McGill University's Faculty of Law. She's worked at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, the Citizen Lab, and the Canadian Internet Policy and Public Interest Clinic, CIPIC. She joins the podcast to discuss the commissioner's findings and to explain why this is best viewed as part of a long cycle of surveillance that has often targeted social movements or those facing socioeconomic barriers. Lex, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you, had the, you found the time to come on. You know, I think for many, the first inclination when they read or heard about the Privacy Commissioner's report involving the RCMP's use of facial recognition technologies and Clearview AI was, was one of shock. As you know, the RCMP initially denied using the technology, including to the, to the Commissioner, which proved to be, or working with Clearview AI, which proved to be untrue and then disputed the Privacy Commissioner's finding that they'd violated the law. Yet your response suggested that you weren't really surprised at all. You noted that the story is all the same, use it, hide it, deny it, get caught, retroactively justify. I thought that's a really powerful statement that I hope that we can unpack on this podcast. But why don't we start with the most recent finding? I know it's a bit of a big ask, but can you bring us up to speed on what happened and what the Privacy Commissioner found? Yeah, no problem. I think it's really helpful to have this factual background. So. Uh, let's do a little one-on-one. Uh, the, the report is about the RCMP's use of Clearview AI, which is a technology company that's offered services, facial recognition technology services to law enforcement and some private organizations, both in Canada and elsewhere. Uh, it's a private, it's a, it's a US-based company and the product it sells is basically access to a massive database of more than 3 billion odd images that they've scraped from the internet without uh, without the consent of the individuals in those photos, obviously, but also, um, you know, peripherally without the consent of the copyright holders of those images either. Um, those photos also include links to the location on the internet where the image was found and sometimes other information. So essentially with the services, you can upload a picture of an individual's face and see where else on the internet that person's face appears. So that has, you know, extraordinary investigative 
potential for law enforcement and extraordinary potential for abuse. Uh, so really, it's, it's a service that allows law enforcement and, and Clearview's other customers to match photos of individuals against that database. Uh, in, and in the report, I mean, the Privacy Commissioner basically referred to it as a 24-7 a lineup of billions of people. Fair enough, right? Um, th there's an important bit of context here, which is that the OPC actually had a separate investigation into Clearview already when this question about the RCMP was raised. And in that investigation, the OPC found that the company was in a really clear violation of Canadian privacy law, um, even though Clear Clearview for, for its part essentially um, denies, at least in part, that Canadian law applies to it or that it breached Canadian law at all through its activities. Um, and so, you know, Clearview's take in that context was essentially that the information that was available, it was available on the public web and it was therefore a fair game for all those scrape, you know, scraping activities that it engaged in and, and the eventual use in its product. Um, I think we just need to confront that at the outset. There's an extraordinarily strong privacy interest in faces, in the data associated with our faces. It's intimate, it's highly sensitive um, biometric information. It's an important part of our, our identities, our bodies. And, and most people's faces don't change over time, right? In fact, faces are, are both hard and expensive to change. And our ability to, um, uh, to conceal them from the state is is obviously practically and culturally and legally limited um, pandemic masks notwithstanding. So, so this idea that an image of a face just because it's on the public web is fair game to be exploited for algorithmic analysis and to facilitate mass surveillance. Um, I think that's just impossible to square with, with Canadian law, with the constitution, uh, with common sense. Um, okay, so that's the, the ultra background. And so regarding the RCMP specifically, um, the, the investigation of the RCMP sort of flows from this earlier investigation or this preliminary investigation into Clearview and what the OPC report discovered or, or, or um, confirmed was that as of October 2019, the RCMP had secretly purchased two licenses to use Clearview and it had also had a bunch of free trial accounts since that time and I think we're talking about 19 accounts in total. And that, these records, Clearview's records, eventually revealed that RCMP accounts conducted at least over 500 searches, the vast majority of which were essentially unexplained or unexplainable. Um, it's really critical to note here, as you, as you mentioned at the top, right, that when the RCMP was first approached by the RPC, about, uh, the OPC regarding its use of this technology, it denied using Clearview's technology altogether, and that's in January 2020. But like about a month later, Clearview's client list was stolen. So of course, the RCMP was on that list. And there was uh, in parallel a significant journalistic investigation taking place, at, at which point the RCMP admits the OPC that it had in fact been using Clearview technology. And, and in fact, that it would continue to do so even though there was an ongoing OPC investigation. So at, at that moment in time, around that moment in time, the RCMP's position was, okay, well, actually we are using it, but we're only using it for really limited purposes and basically just for um, identifying and rescuing children who are victims of online sexual exploitation and violence. And then a few months later, um, you know, the RCMP says it's, it, it's only used Clearview technology 78 times or it's conducted 78 uses, whatever that word means. Um, and that the majority of those were either for testing or to identify victims. So at that point, then the, the OPC is under the impression that this is still a relatively limited 
set of use cases and contexts. And it's only once the OPC actually analyzes Clearview's own records that we get this number of 521 searches. So the ultimate conclusion of OPC's findings here is that based on the information available to them, only about 6% of the searches that were conducted had any relationship to identifying uh, victims. And then a full 85% of those searches were totally unaccounted for. There is still no explanation of what the RCMP was doing with that technology. So what, like, where does that leave us? Well, in part in response, well, probably a number of factors, but our um, Clearview stopped offering services in Canada in, uh, I believe, July of last year, so around this time last year, uh, which means that the RCMP is no longer using it, that other law enforcement agencies in Canada are theoretically no longer using the technology. But the report is still important for a number of reasons, in part because um, of the, the nature of the OPC's findings, the kinds of legal arguments that the RCMP seem to be raising uh, in response, and the fact that the RCMP ultimately disagrees with uh, the OPC's conclusion that it was violating the law, which suggests that it's going to continue to rely on these sorts of specious legal theories to, to justify future um, surveillance and use of third-party surveillance technology. Um, you know, and, you know, to be fair to them, the OPC did make a series of recommendations uh, which the RCMP does say that it's going to follow. Well, whether or not that actually materializes, you know, remains to be seen. When you provide all the, the facts, it's hard to know which is more shocking, whether it's the, the inaccuracies from the RCMP side, the way the data was used, and how much of it remains unaccounted, how they now are still disputing some of the, some of the RCMP's findings, but uh, it would be useful to delve into that just a bit more as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the dishonesty and what, you know, whether there's an intentional misrepresentation that took place or whether the RCMP is just not in control of, of what its employees, its officers are doing such that it didn't realize that the technology was being used. In either case, I think we should be profoundly concerned about that fact alone. I think that we should also be really worried about um, the way uh, you know, some of the conclusions that uh, that the OPC comes to on a, on a legal basis. So the OPC basically says Clearview violated Canadian privacy law. There's just no question about it. And it says that in these kinds of contexts, the RCMP can't rely, can't use a tool that is itself illegal to conduct its investigations. Um, there's a quote from the report, it says, and this is a good summary here, in essence, a government institution cannot collect personal information from a third party agent if that third party agent collected the information unlawfully. Now, I think that that's actually like there's kind of some legal nuance there that's not maybe being captured. But in general, I really agree with with this. And I think that the thinking behind this is critical, which is that if we accepted that the RCMP could just um, contract with private entities to do things that it otherwise would not be lawfully allowed to do itself, what we're doing is we're essentially outsourcing the violation of uh, the, the fundamental human rights, charter rights of Canadians and people in Canada uh, to the private sector, right? So we're basically saying, uh, go ahead and get away with all the rights violations you want, as long as you get that information indirectly from a third party who is doing something you couldn't do directly. Now that, that can't be how the constitution works. So I think that's fundamental. Now there might be, certain kinds of exceptions for certain kinds of investigative techniques, but I think that the overarching principle here is, is fundamental. And I think it's really troubling that in response to these concerns, the RCMP basically took the position that they have no obligation whatsoever to investigate whether or not the third parties they contract with are actually in compliance with Canadian law. 
all they did was rely on Clearview's own assertions that all the images in its database were quote unquote publicly available information, which is an incredibly loaded term that we can unpack for hours. Uh, you know, and so basically it it took for granted that Clearview was following Canadian law because Clearview kind of said it was, um, and that's not good enough. Um, the OPC, and I think many scholars and advocates and lawyers are concerned, you know, that the RCMP essentially seems willing to abrogate or deny its responsibility to respect Canadians and, and, the, and people in Canada, their charter rights, basically uh, on the basis of bald assertions from private companies. So that's profound. That's profound. It's serious. Uh, you know, another piece is that um, the RCMP itself had no mechanisms in place to keep track of what it was doing with this technology. And there the OPC said that there were serious and systemic gaps. And again, we're talking about, a, you know, it's it's scandalous. It's a huge problem. But here we're, we're really talking about one specific service, one specific use case, one specific kind of technology. And if this infrastructure isn't in place for use of facial recognition uh, tech like Clearview, uh, we can be sure that it's not in place for other kinds of privacy invasive technologies as well. So I think that there's a systemic problem there where not only uh, does the RCMP have a use first, apologize later kind of approach uh, to novel um, surveillance technologies, but uh, they're also not keeping good track of what they're doing with them um, live. And that, that creates incredible problems for for review, for oversight, um, for, for, for recourse in the event that people do try and seek remedies from the courts. Uh, and so I think that there's just a fundamental um, problem of accountability at the heart of all of this. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I think it it, it highlights the systemic issues are, are really where I think a lot of the concern does indeed lie. But I have to say that, you know, when you talked about sort of how this is, in a sense, nothing new, uh, that we've seen this this story before. It's always the same. You know, you made the argument that there's really a, a straight line between this kind of case and, and surveillance, even of social movements decades ago. Can you explain a little bit some of that, that history, the, the broader context upon which we're seeing these issues emerge now on facial recognition technology, but in, in some ways, the issues have, have been recurring literally for decades. This piece is really important. It's actually at the heart of the complaint that was originally filed about the RCMP use of, of Clearview technology by um, member of parliament, Charlie Angus. Uh, and his complaint that he filed raises this issue directly. He talks about um, the importance of indigenous led protests against mega resource, resource projects against the government. He identifies that there's been a history of distrust between those participating in political protests in the RCMP. And he asks in his complaint, could technology such as Clearview AI be used to identify protesters and create profiles of civic dissent? And so his question, this overarching question, to me is really underneath all of this. So when we talk just about facial recognition technology, I think it's obvious, it's obvious from the OPC's report, from our own constitutional jurisprudence, um, from, from basic common sense, that these technologies represent a privacy risk. And I, I think that while that individual intrusion is important, constitutionally and practically it's not the whole story and um you know to be honest and while there's i think um really important and meaningful scholarship on this point i'm not personally that interested in privacy for privacy's sake um i'm i'm interested in privacy because i'm interested in freedom um you know with all of the 
complexity and historical contradiction that that word entails. And so I think when we think about the, the threats raised by facial recognition technology, other forms of algorithmic technology uh, in the hands of law enforcement, we need to sort of move beyond this idea that it's a purely individual rights issue and look at the ways that technologies of censorship, of surveillance, of control have been used historically in this country and in others. And there we see, uh, you know, like a, a history that goes all, all the way back to the founding of the RCMP, um, you know, to, to police, uh, I mean, the RCMP was literally created to surveil Indigenous people, right? Um, the idea, you know, Sir John A. Macdonald gets this idea um, from the Royal Irish Constabulary, which is like a paramilitary force that the British used to keep uh, Irish people under control. You know, so the history, the history of surveillance um, as a means of political control, not of crime fighting, but of political control is, is at the, the moment of conception in our history for, for these forces. And I mean, we see this thread throughout history. We see it very recently. We can look at the SPVM surveillance of, of journalists uh, just a few years ago in Montreal. Uh, we can look at the surveillance of women's rights organizations going back to, uh, you know, the fight for the vote to, uh, the fight for reproductive justice. Uh, Steve Hewitt has written quite a bit, uh, among others, on surveillance of women's movements and the abortion caravan by the RCMP. Um, the surveillance of campus movements, uh, you know, has been um, an, an issue in Canada, a documented issue in Canada um, for, for decades, um, you know, anti-racist groups, um, the surveillance of Black Lives Matter activists, I don't know more activists, environmental activists, indigenous groups, uh, on reserve, off reserve, uh, all kinds of different human rights movements. We can look at the, you know, the surveillance of prominent uh, individuals like Cindy Blackstock. Uh, we can look at the surveillance of veterans activists. Like this is, this is, um, you know, central and, you know, in the cross-border context, I'm sorry, uh, Muslim and Arab uh, individuals in particular, just, I, I think that it is essential to understand that the surveillance of social movements, of, of political opponents, this is part of law enforcement uh, and intelligence in Canada. It is, these kinds of abuses can be pointed to throughout our history. We need to understand them in a historical context and we need to understand that the, the role that these emerging technologies play. So when we talk, you know, kind of more recently about uh, social media surveillance of, um, of Indigenous or, or Black Lives Matter activists, um, th this, is, um, this is par for the course, right? And so I think it's a historical, I think we're missing an important point here to look at this one issue, uh, you know, with Clearview where the RCMP first denied that it was using the technology and then eventually kind of gets caught using the technology as an isolated incident. This is really um, part of a pattern. Lex, that's a historical tour de force on the origins of the RCMP and how these concerns are truly longstanding. Now, before Clearview AI and facial recognition technology concerns, there were IMSI catchers. Can you tell me a little bit about what those are and how that issue played out? IMSI catchers were um, devices that internally the RCMP and other law enforcement agencies in Canada called cell site simulators. Sometimes they're known as uh, stingrays, which is like a brand name. Uh, but essentially, these are little boxes. They mimic a cell tower and they collect mobile identifiers associated with individual cell phones. And, and because basically everyone has a cell phone, um, you know, what, what these devices 
give law enforcement the power to do is to track, among other things, the movement of a particular device over time. So while there's this idea or there was an argument that individual mobile identifiers, it's not like your name, uh, you know, we don't know exactly who you are, why is this so privacy invasive? The reality was that once you had this data in aggregate over time, you could track an individual's movement in really complex ways. And location data is some of the most intimate, uh, you know, personal information we have in the sense that, you know, uh, if, you, if you know that somebody goes to this mosque or attended this protest or visited this brothel or appears to be spending a lot of time around a specific group of other devices, other people, you know, you can learn really intimate information about a person. Sometimes we, you know, we learn things that people don't quite even know about themselves yet um, from lo location data. So I think it's, you know, when I first started doing research in this area many years ago now, MC catchers were this really kind of emerging question because the RCMP and other law enforcement bodies in Canada had denied that they were using them. And we saw the same things there, access to information requests denied, neither confirmed nor denied, no information. And then gradually it became, oh, well, they're only being used for serious crimes. It ultimately becomes revealed that they were being used at, for a period in time without any prior judicial authorization or any supervision at all. Later, there were kind of inadequate forms of, of supervision taking place. I mean, it's the exact same pattern where, uh, you know, these private sector companies sell fun new toys to law enforcement. They use them without the public's knowledge, consent, permission, awareness. They deny it to the press. They deny it to researchers and journalists. And then once these technologies are sort of entrenched in the way that law enforcement does their work, then we start having a conversation about how to kind of retroactively find ways to make them legally permissible. And, you know, we're seeing the same thing now for the use of sort of risk scoring uh, technology, algorithmic technology. Uh, I would point your listeners to an incredible, just a phenomenal report uh, from, from Kate Robertson and Cynthia Koo and Yolanda Song to this effect, uh, produced by Citizen Lab and, and the IHRP, which is now under censure. Um, well, U of T is under censure. Uh, that, I mean, that report is, is phenomenal because it gives us such a um, such a current and in-depth view of the different kinds of emerging technologies that are being used by law enforcement uh, in this country. Uh, and, and I mean, we're going to see the same thing, not just with that technology, but we're gonna see it with drones, for example, at protests, we're going to see it in other kinds of applications. And it's a, we're really talking about a systemic issue here, right? Where, um, you know, maybe there's a meaningful public conversation to be had about the extent to which the public believes that the use of these tools is, is democratically, politically, constitutionally justifiable. But we're not having those conversations. Instead, what's happening is we're getting a sort of trickle truth approach um, and we're getting a sort of um, post hoc rationalization, uh, you know, that I think really sells the public short in terms of uh, their right to know and in terms of our right to decide collectively as a society how much of this technology we really want in our lives. So I think, um, you know, when we when we circle back to this history of, of surveillance of social movements, the relationship between surveillance and, and freedom of expression, I think it's critical. Um, we're not we're not just talking here about um, you know, we're not we're not just talking about individual privacy rights. We're talking about the ability of people to express themselves, to assemble, to participate in democratic life. Uh, we're you know the 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 sort of term of art here is is chilling effects. You know, we know that people change their behavior when they're watched. 
uh, that's fundamental. And so there's a really profound relationship between um, surveillance or the perception that we're being surveyed and um, the ability to, to fully participate in public life and to express ourselves. And of course, and I feel totally remiss that, you know, I haven't brought this up at first, but of course, like there's a, a vast amount of literature around uh, the, the fact that these technologies often reproduce and exacerbate systemic racism, uh, you know, uh, that they contribute, for example, the use of um, pre-existing mugshot databases, right? Um, include massive over-representation of black and individual, uh, indigenous individuals. So uh, when you start using facial recognition technology with these kinds of um, databases and source data, uh, what, what we have is a system that reproduces uh, inequality in the sense that white people who are engaged in criminal activities are going to show up less in these databases because white people are, are less likely to be targeted, investigated, caught, or, or prosecuted to begin with um, because of the reality of racial profiling. And so I think that we have to kind of understand all of this as, as part of a coherent whole. And you know, I guess my, my last thought on this, and I think it's it's tightly connected to the, the freedom of expression and the public participation issue, but you know, where do we see these new technologies rolled out first? Well, it's on it's on vulnerable populations, populations of people who uh, you know uh, don't always have the the capacity or the ability to prioritize resistance to these highly technical um, uh, kinds of development. So take for example. Um, uh, surveillance of migrants, um, you know, uh, there, the, we, we saw in Petra Molnar and I have written about this idea uh, that in the context of AI that, you know, a lot of these algorithmic technologies are being first rolled out on populations uh, with, with less uh, access to recourse through the courts and high risk, high stakes, kind of low oversight context first, like in the context of uh, immigration uh, and refugee law. Um, you know, Tamir Israel has written an incredible and extraordinarily detailed and, and up-to-date report about the use of this technology by the CBSA in cross-border context. And I know you had him on uh, your show already to talk about this. So, uh, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it's, you know, the use of borders as a kind of civil liberties choke point is, uh, you know, really, really critical to understand. And of course, whenever we're talking about technology like facial recognition, we have to think about, well, who's stuck in public space more often? So people who are living in poverty, people who have ac less access to privacy, um, people uh, experiencing homelessness who have no choice but to live their lives in public are always going to be disproportionately affected by these kinds of technologies. So we have to have, I think, a real um, historical approach, understanding the relationship between, uh, you know, law enforcement uh, and the surveillance and the policing and the repression of social movements, but also understand the sort of day-to-day -day equality rights risks that these kinds of technologies uh, can pose. Why don't we close with this? I, you mentioned that I had Tamir Israel on the podcast. I've had Nasma Ahmed as well. So there's been some focus on facial recognition technologies in the past and on this program. And, and I've taught, there's been discussion, of course, about a need for a ban, at least in certain contexts, until we set or establish some of the legal rules that provide some amount of safeguards. But when I hear you sort of walk through the history and the impact that these kinds of technologies have, that even that feels inadequate. I mean, this feels like a bit of a whack-a-mole type of game when each technology comes along. And so that the problems are so deeply systemic and historical. Uh, I guess I, I, I'm wondering, do you have thoughts about how we go about 
addressing some of these issues? Is it just to continue to play this sort of whack-a-mole game, rely on MPs to raise concerns and privacy commissioners to put out reports? Or is there something more that can be done that, that sort of addresses more directly some of these truly pervasive and longstanding concerns that you've identified? Um, there's, there's a lot of layers to that. I think that the thing I want to foreground in answering this question is that um, if we want to stop playing this game of whack-a-mole, if we want to stop playing a purely defensive game, then I think that what we need to start thinking about really critically is how to, um, how to uh, connect this conversation around abuses of technology and the service of surveillance and censorship and other, other kinds of human rights abuses with conversations that are happening in community around what, what exactly we want the role of law enforcement to be in our society. And there are really powerful and important movements calling for defunding and abolition. And I think technologists need to think very seriously and carefully about how their work intersects with those demands um, fr from, from people who have been working on criminal justice issues for a long time. So I think that, um, you know, in, so when we talk about a moratorium, yeah, I think that's a, a critical first step. I think that uh, it's it's fundamentally irresponsible for a government to be deploying these kinds of technologies on a public without their knowledge, without their consent, without a meaningful democratic process uh, legitimizing, uh, you know, that that choice. But I think also, you know, we can we need a fundamental reorientation to how we think about uh, the legitimacy of states using these technologies. And you know, so you can look to like, for example, in the environmental movement or in, uh, in philosophy, there's this idea of a precautionary principle, you know, and I think that that's part of what's missing in how we uh, think about the use of, of this technology in the sense that it's, it's always, um, you know, could, could we plausibly use this technology to catch somebody potentially committing a crime? And the answer to that is always going to be yes, but it's not the right question to be answering, right? Uh, we Instead, we need to think about the values of not just um, reliability, but also about necessity and proportionality of these technologies, the trade-offs they, they come with in terms of uh, our democratic rights. And, you know, I, I don't want to um, at all glorify past approaches because historically these issues have always been problematic, but I would say that there's a, a marked difference between how legislators are approaching these issues today and how they historically did. If you look, for example, to the criminal code, we do have prescribed legal frameworks for the taking of fingerprints, uh, for the taking of DNA samples, which are both uh, you know, extraordinary privacy invasions and, and that uh, are part of the criminal law. So those kinds of specific legal frameworks written into statute that are democratically approved are totally absent in the context of a lot of emerging technologies that don't fit neatly into the regimes we might have for, you know, wiretapping, for example. And so I think, uh, you know, legislature, uh, the legislature has a serious role to play in forcing these conversations to be happening publicly, openly, democratically. Um, I think that the, you know, the rule ought to be that technologies are not adopted at all until we know that they're safe, until we have had a public conversation about them. And here's another thing, you know, and it goes back to this conversation about MC catchers, but so many of these things are kept from the public uh, on the basis of this idea that if the public knew that certain investigative techniques 
were being used, it would interfere with those investigative techniques, their ability to be effective. And so that's the legal pretext that's used to keep the public from knowing that uh, these technologies are being adopted in the first place. And in, in the vast majority of cases, that justification just doesn't hold water at all, right? Um, for example, with facial recognition, I mean, what are you gonna do, stop having a face, you know? What, <laughs> um, you know, the, the fear that these technologies could be meaningfully circumvented by, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's specious. It's a totally disproportionate argument. Same thing with MC catchers. I mean, to get around an MC catcher, you basically have to turn your phone off, right? And so for these systems to work, uh, I just think, I think that we really need to examine this idea of secrecy by default. I think it's, it's impossible to square with uh, the democratic values that underlie uh, you know, our charter, underlie our, our constitution more generally. So that's a, that's a big piece of, of structural change. There's, you know, uh, I think that, oh, and then here's this other thing. And the OPC is limited because of its jurisdiction. So I don't wanna be too harsh uh, on them for this, but to me, um, you know, the, the fact that these technologies are being used, sometimes, sometimes there is this idea that because we exist in a legislative vacuum where there are very clear written rules, for example, in federal privacy law, there's this idea that, well, anything goes or that things are legal until the legislator makes them illegal. And that is not true. Uh, that's not true because we have a charter of rights and freedoms that protects uh, you know, the, the right to privacy, it protects the right to freedom of expression, it, it protects our section seven rights to life, liberty and security of the person. And so uh, the, the, the reality is that a lot of these activities are in fact unconstitutional, but there are huge access to justice barriers and evidentiary barriers to litigating them. And I don't think it's ideal for anyone uh, to, to exist in a society where the police kind of systematically adopt new technologies that adopt people's, uh, that, that violate people's rights and have to rely on criminal defense lawyers and class action lawyers and constitutional litigators to bring cases of their own initiatives to put an end to these practices. So there's gotta be a certain amount of proactivity on the part of the government uh, and on the part of, of, of lawmakers to, to say, well, you know what, let's first make a public decision about what we're going to do here uh, we'll test that constitutionally. We'll develop a theory of how to minimize harm, how to ensure so appropriate safeguards and guardrails, you know, and then we'll 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 move forward. Um, and so I think, yeah, we need a complete reimagination of all of this. Um, but you know, uh, the, the starting point uh, has to be a kind of precautionary principle. It has to be a moratorium on the you know these these kinds of technologies as a as a sort of baseline to have further conversations. Lex, so much to think about and obviously so much work to be done. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. 
Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.